0: the screen up there. His name is Speedy Morris. Speedy Morris was a college basketball coach. He's now retired, but he's best known for coaching LaSalle University in Philadelphia. He coached at LaSalle University from 1986 to about 2001. And during that period of time, he revolutionized LaSalle University's basketball program. He left LaSalle University with the most wins the school has ever recorded. During his time there, he, he led that team to four NCAA tournament appearances, which is saying a lot for LaSalle University. They're not exactly a basketball powerhouse. So he was the winningest coach in LaSalle's history and really did a phenomenal job with their program there. His best year at LaSalle University was and 1989-1990. And that year, he led the team to a 30-2 and overall record, which is pretty doggone good. He developed three NBA players out of that team. And so that was his best season. That was the school's best season in their history. And it was just at the end of that season that Speedy Morris tells the following true story. One morning, he was upstairs in the bathroom shaving. When the phone rings downstairs, he hears his wife answer the phone. And a moment later, she calls up the stairs to say, Speedy, the phone is for you. It's Sports Illustrated. Now, if you're a college basketball coach, having the best season of your career in Sports Illustrated calls, then what are you thinking? You're thinking your ship has just come in. And so in that moment, Speedy Morris it visioned in his mind, his picture on the front of Sports Illustrated magazine. They are going to do a big write-up about him. He pictured book deals. He pictured NBA jobs. His ship was truly coming in. So, if Sports Illustrated is on the phone, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You need to get to that phone. You're not about to tell them to call you back. So he began in a panic to try to get downstairs as quick as quickly as he could. He cut himself shaving rather badly. His blood got blood all over his face, blood dripping down his shirt, starts running down the steps, trips halfway down, rolls to the bottom of the steps, badly spraining an ankle, falls to a heap at the bottom of the steps, but if you are a college basketball coach and Sports Illustrated is on the phone, then you don't lay there in the phone or on the floor crying about your sprained ankle, you hobble or do whatever you have to do to get to the phone, which is what he does. He jumps, hops one leg to the phone, finally gets over the phone, picks up the phone and says, this is Speedy Morris. A voice on the other end of the phone said, Mr. Morris, we're happy to offer to you one year trial subscription of Sports Illustrated at 90% off the cover price. Now can you imagine how Speedy Morris felt at that moment? Can you maybe have one word pop into your brain that would describe Speedy Morris at that moment? Maybe angry, Furious, perhaps? Frustrated? Foolish? Or what about disappointed? I mean, here he thought his ship had just come in, and not only has his ship not come in, and there's a telemarketer on the phone, but he now has a cut face and a sprained ankle to boot. Disappointment. We're in the middle of the story of one of Paul's greatest disappointments of his life here in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 23. Paul has been laboring on the mission field for three long years in his third missionary journey. He has been burdened by the disunity that exists between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile churches. And so for at least two years now, he's been laboring to raise this offering by the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem church as sort of a a reconciliation offering. The Jerusalem church is experiencing a famine. And so he raises funds to help them with that famine. And what he hopes will come out of this is unity and harmony between the Jerusalem Christians and the Gentile Christians. And so he makes it a point to get back to Jerusalem despite despite what everybody else in his life tells him. Everybody tells him to stay away, that something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, he rushes to Jerusalem. He gets there expecting to give this offering to the Jerusalem church. And out of that come. Some gratitude, some unity, some reconciliation, some healed feelings. And what he finds is just the opposite. What he finds is that not only is this offering that he's given to them next to meaningless to them, but he also finds that the situation in Jerusalem is worse than even he thought it was. And the problem exists completely around him because the Jerusalem elders tell him that we've got real problems in the church here and the problem is with you, Paul. And the fact that you're here in Jerusalem now is not a good thing. So they propose this very difficult compromise, certainly this untasteful compromise for Paul to do to offer these sacrifices and do this Jewish purification ceremony, which he does. He does it out of a motive of unity for the church. And so he does this, but it doesn't work at all. In fact, it only seems to make things worse. A few days later, the Asian Jews see Paul with Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, and then a little bit later they see Paul coming out of the temple. So they assume that that meant that Paul took Trophimus into the temple and they go into a huge uproar. A riot breaks out. They grab Paul. They nearly beat him to death. He's rescued by the Roman army. The tribune comes in and grabs him, puts him in chains, and the tribune is trying to figure out what all this is about. So he gives Paul the opportunity to speak to the crowd, Paul thinks, if I can just speak to them, they will listen. They do for a while. And he's speaking to them in the Hebrew. He's speaking to them about the fact that He is not their enemy. He's not an outsider. He is one of them. In fact, He's a stricter Jew than even they are. Only he has now come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the promises of Messiah in the Old Testament Scriptures. But then, as they're listening... They listen all the way up until the point that that Paul says to them that God has ordained him to go to the Gentiles to preach this message of salvation for Gentiles. And at that word, they lose it once again. And another riot breaks out. And that's where we stopped last time. Paul is in the middle of the biggest period of disappointment in in his life, perhaps. And so let's pick up here in verse 22. Verse 22 picks up right after Paul finished what he had to say when He says to them in verse 21 that God said to him, Jesus said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And we see in verse 22, Up to this word they listened to Him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. He should literally not be allowed to live if he thinks that the salvation of God is available to Gentiles without them first becoming like us. They can be saved as long as they become like us first, and then they can be saved. But it's such blasphemy that they believe He doesn't, uh, doesn't deserve to live. So then verse 23, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Now, we don't understand what all of that is about. One thing we know for sure is that that is a demonstration of people who have lost all self-control. They're shouting, they're flinging off their cloaks. We don't exactly know what that's about. Maybe it's, you know, how the Jews would tear their, their cloak, they'd tear their garments when they heard blasphemy. Maybe they're just tearing them so hard that they're tearing them all the way off. Or maybe they're just pulling them off, pulling off their cloaks because they want to stone Paul. Remember when, when Stephen was stoned, Paul held the coats of those who were doing the stoning. So maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they want to stone him and they're flinging dust in the air. We don't know what that's all about. Maybe... Maybe they're just so out of control that they don't know what else to do and just throwing dirt up in the air. Or maybe they want to stone him. No stones around. So they're throwing whatever they can get at Paul. Whatever the case is, they are so enraged by what Paul has just said that God desires to save Gentiles without forcing them to become Jews. In other words, they don't need to change themselves in order to be recipients of the grace of God. They're so enraged about that that they just don't know what else to do. They're acting like beasts. They're throwing off their clothes and throwing dirt around in the air. Then verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So that's the second time that the tribune has now saved Paul's life. We're going to keep track of this because he's not done saving Paul's life yet. So the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. However, the tribune saves Paul, but I'm not sure that this is a very good saving because he says saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So, not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but he saves Paul, and he, then he's decided, well, we need to get to the bottom of this, we need to have Paul examined by flogging. Whatever flogging is going to reveal, I'm not sure, You know, because if he's trying to get to the truth of the matter, I don't know about you, but if you start beating me with a leather whip, I'll say whatever. You, basically whatever you want me to say, to get you to stop, short of denying Jesus, right? I mean, if you want me to say the sky is purple, I'll say the sky is purple. So I'm not sure exactly what he wants from Paul by flogging him or what he expects to get, but he wants the truth. Remember, the Tribune is trying to figure out what's going on. It's his job to maintain peace in Jerusalem. And peace is not being maintained with this guy Paul because there's this huge riot and it's his job to get to the bottom of it. And he can't get to the bottom of it yet because... He he. Uh, the, the riot was breaking out. He went and arrested Paul. He let Paul speak to the crowd, but that didn't help him because Paul was speaking Hebrew. And so likely he didn't understand very much, if anything, of what Paul was saying. Plus this riot breaks out again, so he still needs to get to the bottom of it. So he says, we'll flog him. Now the flogging that he's speaking of here was, would be the, the same flogging that Jesus endured. It would be the cat nine tails, the, the wooden hand with, with the leather cords, the leather thongs with pieces of bone, or pieces of metal on the ends of those leather thongs. And they would—they there was no limit to the flogging. They would flog the person. Oftentimes it would result in broken bones, broken ribs, broken spines. Oftentimes internal organs would be exposed, and many people died from this. So he's going to expose Paul to flogging to try to get to the bottom of what's going on. And so Paul then, uh, he says he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting like this. But verse 25, when they had stretched him out for the whips, and this is good, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Don't you love that? Oh, by the way, it's lawful to flog an uncondemned Roman citizen. Um, you just love how Paul just sort of throws that, that in there. I don't think you knew this about me, but I'm a Roman citizen, and I'm not condemned of any crime. And so this is unlawful, what you're about to do. Kind of like when he was in Philippi, in chapter 16, and they beat him and imprisoned him without a trial, which was unlawful, because he's a Roman citizen. So he brings that up. The, the centurion had no way of knowing that. Most people in this day were not Roman citizens. Out of the 50 or so million Romans, only about 5 million were citizens. So 1 in 10 were citizens. And plus, this is Jerusalem. It, it, not exactly a high concentration of Roman citizens in Jerusalem. So he wouldn't have been expected to know this, but Paul lets him know that he is a Roman citizen. Is this lawful? And of course the answer is no. In fact, to flog a Roman citizen without being condemned is a crime punishable by death. So he lets this, lets this be known to the centurion. Then verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. So think of what the Tribune... Think of how confused he is now. He doesn't quite know how to figure Paul out because at first he thought he was an Egyptian terrorist. He finds out, no, he's not an Egyptian terrorist. In fact, he is a uh, person from this important city of Tarsus. And not only is, is he from the important city of Tarsus, but also he's educated. He speaks fluent Greek. And then he speaks to the people. Obviously, the people listen to him. So he's a man of education. Now he finds out that not only is he from this important city of Tarsus, and not only is he not an Egyptian terrorist, but he's also a Roman citizen. But he's about to find out even more. He's about to find out that Paul's citizenship is even, if it's possible, even better than his. So he says, yes, I am a citizen. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. So... In fact, he's even more of a citizen than the Roman tribune is because he was a citizen by birth. The tribune had to bribe somebody or purchase his citizenship. So he finds out now that Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. So uh, the tribune and Paul, at this point, the tribune becomes Paul's friend for good. Paul has now completely won over this tribune to his side and the tribune will now be Paul's protector from this point on. Remember how Paul connected with him back in chapter 22 because he spoke his language? Not only did he speak a little bit of Greek, he spoke it fluently and with polished Greek. And so he connected to the tribune in an important way. He spoke his language, literally and metaphorically. And so he connected with them. Now he's connected with them in another way. And now this tribune is in Paul's corner from this point on. And that's kind of the pattern that Paul has. Through the rest of the story of the Acts, we're going to notice that Paul's going to be in custody from this point on, but over and over we're going to see that his persecutors being his friends. He wins them over somehow. He's going to get on this ship, this Roman ship as a prisoner, and the ship is going to go into a big storm, and he's going to become the leader of the ship. The Romans will even listen to him. And then the ship is about to be wrecked, and they say, we need to kill all the prisoners, and Paul says, no. Don't kill the prisoners. We're not going to escape. We'll be right here. And they listen to Paul and they trust Paul and do what he says. Then they end up on this island and he becomes the leader there on the island, even the leader of the Roman soldiers. Or we turn to Philippians chapter 1. Paul finally makes it to Rome and he's under guard. And and Paul writes, you know, God's using all this for His glory because most of the guards have come to believe in Jesus. Everywhere Paul goes, he seems to win over his persecutors because He has genuine compassion for them, He speaks their language, He relates to them, and He tells them the truth. And then they're won over. reminds us of Joseph, doesn't it? Joseph is thrown in jail by Potiphar, and he ends up running the jail. You know, there's an important point there. When Christians act like Christians, we tend to win over people around us. Not everybody. But we tend to win over our persecutors. When Christians truly live out the gospel. What should be said about us is what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 as he's writing about elders in the church. He says they are to be well respected by outsiders. Whatever you do for a living, you should do it better than everybody else. Whatever you do to earn your living, the unbelievers around you, you should be seen as as more, more considerate, more compassionate, more trustworthy than the unbelievers whom you work with, whom you do your job with, because that is living out the gospel. As Paul will say to the Colossians, whatever you do, Or he says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do unto the Lord. Or he says to the Colossians, whether you're a slave or whatever you are, work as unto the Lord. And so Paul is doing this, and we see the results of it. He wins over the tribune. The tribune will be his ally from this point on. So verse 28, the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So he'd even broken the law by putting Paul in chains being uncondemned because he's a, a lot of advantages came to, with being a Roman citizen. But he's not too afraid of the, because remember when he put Paul in chains, what was he really doing? He was really saving Paul because the mob was about to beat him to death. So he's a little bit afraid even that he might get in trouble for putting Paul in chains. But then verse 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. See, he still doesn't understand what all this is about. He can't get to the bottom of this. It's his job to do this, so he still needs to figure out what all this hubbub is about. So, being Paul's friend, what does he do? He unbound him. doesn't mean he released him. He's still in custody. But he takes his chains off so that he'll be more comfortable. Remember, Paul is one over the tribune now. So he unbound him, he commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. That's the Jewish Sanhedrin, so these aren't Christians. These would have been the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin council. So the Roman tribune convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought Paul down and set him before them to find out what all this is about. Then verse 23, Paul goes before the council and looking intently at the council. So Paul looks at them very intently, that's the same word that Luke uses back in chapter one for the disciples gazing at Jesus as Jesus ascends into heaven, looking at them intently. Paul probably knew some of them and he's staring at them right in the eyeball. Looking at, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now we'll stop right there because they're going to react to what Paul says and we'll get to that in a moment. But think about what Paul just said. I have lived my life in good conscience up to this day. How can Paul say that? Because has Paul lived his life right? Absolutely not. In fact, that's what the whole Damascus Road thing was all about. Jesus comes to Paul and, and shows Paul, you have been on the wrong path. You've been thinking that you are my friend and that you're working for God, when really... You've been working against me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul will never get over the fact that God died and suffered and died for His enemy. He'll say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, I can't get over the fact that God had mercy on me, a persecutor of His church. And so Paul was most certainly not on the right track for more than half of his life. It took this encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road... For Paul to realize that, so how can Paul say to the Jerusalem council or to the uh, Sanhedrin council? How can he say, "I've lived my life in good conscience to this day"? The key is this word he uses: conscience. Conscience. What's our conscience? All of us have a conscience, don't we? In fact, Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter one that everyone is born with a conscience. This is your in your sermon notes. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So in other words, every man and woman is born with a conscience that tells them some basic truths about God, that there is a God that exists, and some basic requirements that He has of humanity, and we have violated those, right? Everybody has a compass. It's sort of this internal... uh, I'm sorry... Everybody has a conscience. It's sort of like an internal compass. That's what I was trying to say. An internal compass that points us north, that lets us know in some basic ways what God expects of people. Now, this conscience exists in all people, but the problem with the conscience is it can be altered. A conscience can be muted. A conscience can be dulled. A conscience can be seared, is what the Bible called call it. Paul writes to Timothy, in First Timothy chapter 4, he says, In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits through liars whose consciences are seared. That's the Bible's language for how a conscience can become perverted and distorted and changed by the sin around it. See, our conscience is given to us intending to point us to right and wrong. However, the more your conscience is exposed to sin around it and the culture around it or sin within your own heart, the more your conscience becomes comfortable with that and the more your, your compass that's supposed to point north no longer really points true north anymore. I think of it in terms of a ship. Think of yourself as a ship in a river that's flowing with a strong current and your ship is trying to go against the current. The current would represent the of sin in the culture around you. And your ship is trying to navigate against that current. Now, your ship has two tools to help it navigate against the current. And one tool is a rudder. The rudder is like your conscience. The rudder can turn your ship right or left, but what also can happen to the rudder? Your ship can literally turn around and start flowing with the current, and the rudder can actually keep it going with the current, can't it? That's like a conscience. A conscience can be seared, it can be perverted, it can be damaged when we tolerate sin, when we accommodate sin, when we get comfortable with sin around us and within us. And so that's Paul's meaning here. According to my conscience, I've lived well. Now see, the other thing that we have that God gives us to keep our ship going in the right direction, to control our ship, to navigate our ship in in waters with current the other thing that He gives us is an anchor. Now, the difference between a, a rudder and an anchor is this. The current can sear the rudder, can change, can damage. And in fact, your rudder can actually end up steering you down the wrong path. However, the anchor cannot be changed by what's around it. The anchor would represent the Holy Spirit. And all believers are given the Holy Spirit he is the word of truth. He cannot be perverted. He cannot be distorted. He cannot be changed by accommodating the world. Instead, He is the true voice of God in your heart. And so God gives both of those, those tools to humans to help us navigate our life. The conscience can be helpful, but it is not infallible. The Holy Spirit is infallible. Now, how do you tell the difference between the two? How you tell the difference between your conscience and the Holy Spirit? The Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit will never contradict the Word of God. And so measure all things by the anchor of the Word of God. That's why it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Measure everything by that, and we won't go wrong. And so, Paul is speaking here. He stands up to begin speaking. He says, I've lived my life in good conscience, The reason he can say that is because he has. He's lived his whole life according to his conscience. Which actually, when you get down to it, so has everybody else, right? Do you know anybody who's ever lived their life contrary to their conscience? Nobody does that. Everybody lives their life according to their own conscience. Even hardened criminals do that. Because our conscience can be changed and perverted and seared. Everybody justifies themselves. And no matter what activity you're engaged in, no matter what sin you are ensnared in, you will justify that and you will then live according to your conscience. And so Paul is right to say, yeah, when I was persecuting the church, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. That's why I took Jesus on the road to Damascus to show me that I was actually opposing Him. That's why what he means when he says, I've lived my life in good conscience up to this day. Now, look at how they react to this. Paul, Paul looking intently at them and says says to them, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So they're so offended that Paul says that, that the high priest says, Slap him on the mouth, and they do. They're offended that this man who's standing trial can actually say to them, I've lived my life according to good conscience, right? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're very accustomed today to the concept of innocent until proven guilty. But we forget just how, just how that's a, that's a new thing. Innocent until proven guilty has not been around for the majority of the history of man. This is a time in which people on trial were not innocent until proven guilty. They were guilty until proven innocent. So for Paul to say, here's this, here's this guilty man on trial, and for him to say, I've lived my life according to good conscience, they, they consider that prideful and offensive, so they say, slap him. right? This high priest Ananias just uh, just says uh, for him to slap Paul, for stri- to strike him on the mouth, and he does. Then verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. This whitewashed wall, this was the Jews in this day, they would whitewash the, the stones on the tombs because a, for a Jewish person to touch a tomb would defile them. But the problem was that you didn't always know where the tombs were. They, people would be buried just any anywhere. There weren't, weren't necessarily cemeteries everywhere. So people would be buried just any anywhere. But you had to mark that burial tomb because you didn't want people to touch it not knowing and become defiled. So they would whitewash the stone or, or paint it white. As sort of a, a marking to say, this is a tomb, stay away, right? This is why Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you whitewash tombs, right? Imagine how clean and pristine a white, a painted white stone looks compared to the desert around it, or the rocks and dirt around it, right? It looks really clean and pristine. And so Jesus says, Yeah, you look really clean and pristine on the outside, but inside you're full of corpses. You're you're full of rotting flesh on the inside, right? That's Jesus' point. Paul says the same thing here. You whitewashed wall. You look righteous and you look clean on the outside, but really your heart is very black and very dirty. So Paul responds in that way. He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. So Paul says... You, he points out his hypocrisy. You think that you're judging me according to the law, but actually you're violating the law and what you just did. Now, what did Paul just do? Paul just acted in an extraordinarily unchristlike like way. Paul was just very much unlike Jesus. Remember what Peter says about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, verse 23? When Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Paul has done, just done the opposite. When Paul was reviled, he reviled back. When Paul suffered, he threatened. God's going to strike you. You're going to strike me? Well, God will strike you. Paul has just acted in an extraordinarily unchrist like way. You see, Paul is at a low point in his life. Right now, we've talked about how disappointed he must have been. Nothing seems to be going right in Jerusalem. Everything he does seems to blow up in his face. And Paul reacts to being sinned against by sinning right back. Was it true that Ananias sinned against Paul when he slapped him? Of course. But you see, the Bible teaches us that it really doesn't matter what people do to us. What matters is how we react back to that. The Bible teaches us that we can be sinned against by others, but what really matters is will you sin back to them or not. Paul was sinned against by Ananias. And in sin, Paul reacted sinfully back to him. Don't you love how the Bible paints a true, accurate picture of humanity? Don't you appreciate how the Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything about ourselves? It doesn't sugarcoat our our human heroes. It doesn't paint a picture of the apostles or the prophets as sinless, perfect people. Instead, it shows us all of their flaws, all of their ugliness, It shows us a Moses who had a real problem with self-control, had a real problem with his temper. It shows us Abraham who had a problem telling the truth. It shows us David who had a problem with women, even so far as he would go to murder the husband of one. It shows us people like Peter who had a real problem with controlling his tongue. And it shows us the Apostle Paul who can succumb to sin himself. No other faith does that. No other religion paints an accurate picture of its human heroes. Every other world religion paints an inaccurate, perfect picture of its human heroes. And folks, that's just, that's beyond belief. Because you know what? The Bible tells us we have one hero and one hero only. Our hero is not Paul. Our hero is not Abraham. Our hero is not David. Our hero is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so we do ourselves no favors. We do the Gospel no favors when we teach others to be like Paul or be like James or be like David. Paul will say to the Galatians, imitate me Only in as much as I imitate Christ, because Jesus Christ is our only hero. So Paul succumbs to the sin in his own heart as he struck, he he strikes back with his words, with his judgment. He says, well, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me? And then verse four, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul is shown his error, and he immediately recognizes his error and seeks forgiveness, which is what we are commanded to do. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 2 and 3 says, If you are snared in the words of your mouth, then do this and save yourself. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbors. Scriptures teach us that when we are shown our error, when we have sinned against others, and we have come, come to realize that, we hasten to make it right with them. And this is what Paul does. He says, I didn't know, I didn't recognize that was the high priest. Paul hasn't been living in Jerusalem for some time now, and so he wouldn't have been expected to recognize the high priest, because it wasn't like this was the days of the Internet, and he saw his picture on the Internet or something like that. He didn't recognize it was the high priest. But in reality, did it really matter who he was. He could have been nobody, and Paul still sinned against him. But we do look to what Paul, Paul says when he's shown his error, He corrects himself, he seeks forgiveness, he apologizes, so to speak. Then verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if an angel or a a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So if you're counting, that's number three. Three times that the tribune has saved Paul's life, and he's not done yet. Next week, we're going to see he's going to save his life yet again. So even this meeting turns violent once again. Paul speaks exactly two sentences, or three sentences, I guess you could say. He speaks three sentences, and once again, a riot breaks out, and it starts to become violent. The tribune is seeing firsthand just how divisive the gospel is. He's seeing firsthand, he doesn't even understand what this is about yet, but he's seeing firsthand that all Paul has to do is open his mouth and people get mad. In fact, they don't just get angry, they get downright furious. Just as Jesus will say to us, he didn't come to bring a peace, he came to bring a sword. He came to divide household against household because the gospel by its very nature is divisive. And the tribune is seeing this firsthand. So, he brings Paul into this uh, Sanhedrin council to try to get to the bottom of it. He still hasn't got to the bottom of what all this is about because this argument breaks out. And the argument breaks out when Paul says that he's, he, uh, he is on trial because of the resurrection. Now, we tend to, we tend to, I think, um, be taught about this passage that Paul did that on purpose that he that he sees that some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees, and he knows that those people don't like each other. He's a Pharisee, and he knows that there's sharp disagreement between them, and the sharp disagreement exists over theology, because the Sadducees are the liberals. They They don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in angels, spirits, all that kind of stuff. They're the liberals. And the Pharisees are conservatives. They do believe in the supernatural. Paul sees this, and so he wants to create a distraction because he sees it's not going well for himself, so he wants to create this distraction and get the the attention off himself. And I think the text supports that. I think the text implies to us, at least, that Paul does do that on purpose, that his motive here is a motive of kind of saving himself because he sees it's not going well for him. And so he says, let me throw this resurrection thing out there. I know that'll get a fight started and I can kind of put this off to another day because it's not going very well for me. Because Luke says in verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part of the Pharisees and the other Pharisees, that's when he said that. If we look over to chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 20, uh, here Paul is before Felix, the governor, and he's talking about this trial with the Sanhedrin. And he says this, um, verse 20, they, they uh, or else let these men themselves, meaning the Sanhedrin, let them say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, which is what we're talking about now, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he sort of admits to Felix that, yeah, that was not right. I, I, my motive, my goal was something I, should, I even admits it. So I think that Paul's motive here was a selfish, self-saving sort of motive. But what I want to see is this. Even though Paul's motive is not pure, even though his goal is to start a fight so that he can get out of this trial, even so, the Spirit still uses that. The Spirit still uses it because Paul says, this is all about the resurrection, which is true. It is all about the resurrection. The resurrection is the linchpin to everything Paul has to say. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, guess what? Everything is worthless. Your faith is futile. You are still dead in your sins. Everything is useless without the resurrection. So it really does all hang on the resurrection. So the point is, even though I don't think that was Paul's intention, he really is still preaching the gospel. And the Spirit really is using his words. Kind of like what Jesus would say, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious. Don't worry about how you're to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So even though Paul is not necessarily thinking in those terms, the Spirit is still using him. And so Paul mentions this about the resurrection, causes this big fight. Now they get violent again. He's got to be rescued once again by the tribune. And the tribune takes him back to the barracks, puts him back back in custody. Can you imagine right now how low Paul is. Can you imagine? He came to Jerusalem after working for two years on this offering that is supposed to unify the church. And he has found that not only did it not unify the church, it has even made things worse. In fact, everything Paul has done since he got into Jerusalem has made the situation worse, hasn't it? The sacrifices, the purification ceremony, that was supposed to help. That didn't help. That made it worse. You see, Paul cannot fix this. And that's the whole point. Paul cannot fix what is wrong in people's hearts. And that's not to say that he did the wrong thing by bringing this offering to Jerusalem or that he did the wrong thing in doing the sacrifice things. We saw that his motive was pure. His heart was pure. And I think his wisdom was, was sound given the options that were before him. I think he did the right choice. However, the point is, he can't fix this. Everything he does seems to just make it worse and inflame the situation and nothing has gone right since he got to Jerusalem. So can you imagine right now just how low the Apostle Paul feels. Now look at verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now that's the third time that Jesus has appeared to Paul. The first time we read back in chapter 22 was the Damascus Road. Jesus appears to Paul there. The second time was in the temple three years later. Jesus appears to Paul in a trance, and now this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to Paul, but this one is different. Because Luke tells us very clearly that Jesus stood by Paul. You see, the other two appearances were not Jesus' literal presence. The Damascus Road was a light. The temple, Paul was in a trance. That was a vision. This time, Jesus physically stands there with him. Paul is at the lowest point, and Jesus comes to him to say, yeah, you can't fix all this, can you? But you know what? I'm the God of Romans 8.28, and I'm using all of this, because what are you going to do? You are going to use this to testify about me in Rome, because what we're going to see now is all of this thing, everything that's going wrong in Jerusalem, that's the key for Paul to get to Rome. Without all this, he's not going to get to Rome and get an an audience with the emperor. And so he's saying to Paul, yes, as you see it, everything is going horribly wrong. As I see it, it's not. So Jesus stood beside him and look at the words that he said to him. Take courage. Now those two words in the English, take courage, that's one word in the Greek. And what's interesting is that that one word in our New Testaments, is only ever found on the lips of Jesus. No one else in our Bibles ever speaks that word. Paul doesn't speak it. Peter doesn't speak it. James doesn't speak it. John doesn't speak it. Only Jesus speaks that word. Take courage. Five times He says it. I'll put it in your notes here. In your sermon notes from Matthew 9. This is the, uh, this is the paralytic lying on his bed. Jesus said to him, take heart or take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Later on in that same chapter, this is the woman with the 12-year flow of blood. Take heart or take courage. Your faith has made you well. Or from Matthew 14, this is when Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water in the storm. He says, take heart or take courage. It's me. Then John 16, this is in the upper room, the night before the crucifixion. Jesus says to them, take heart or take courage for you will experience tribulation in the world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Take courage. You think Paul's courage is failing at this point? You think his heart is faltering? You bet it is. But you know what? After this point, Paul will never falter again. The rest of the Acts story, Paul stands firm, he stands strong, and we will never see him sin openly like that again. Because Jesus comes to him and says, take courage. Now, how is it that this gives Paul courage? Why is it that Jesus can say, take heart, take courage? I want us to notice something common in every one of those instances in which Jesus says, take courage. In every instance that Jesus says, take courage, the reason we take courage is always Him. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. How are your sins forgiven? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. Take courage. It's me. It's not a ghost. Take courage. It's me. Take courage. I have overcome the world. And take courage. You will testify about me in in Rome. Me. I'm the object of your testimony. Every time the courage comes as the human's focus is redirected back to the Son of God. You see, Paul's focus has left Jesus right now. His focus has been taken off of Jesus and it has been put on his earthly circumstances about how, how everything in Jerusalem is going wrong. And Paul has sort of developed this little pity party on himself. And he's looking inwardly. He's looking at himself. Oh, woe is me. And then Jesus shows up and says, take courage, get your eyes back on me. There's a story that's told about Alexander the Great. We all know. Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror of the known world. Well, when he was a teenager, his father Philip was the ruler. And what's not often known about Alexander the Great was that he was a spectacular horseman. One day, a horse trader brings some horses to his father Philip, and they're showing these different horses, and one of the horses was a perfect specimen of a horse. One huge muscle. Perfect skeletal frame, perfect head, perfect neck, alert. This was a perfect specimen of a horse, but this horse was unrideable. Everybody that tried to ride this horse was immediately thrown because the horse was so erratic and uncontrollable. And Alexander's father, Philip, was about to say, take this horse away. But Alexander stopped him because Alexander, who would become Alexander the Great, he, he saw something in this horse that everybody else had missed he saw that what this horse was really afraid of was not the people they were trying to ride him. What this horse was really afraid of was his own shadow. And if you spend any time with horses, you know that that's that's not a crazy thing. Horses are afraid of the weirdest stuff. And so this horse was literally afraid of his own shadow. Every time he would see this black thing following him, he would get afraid. So Alexander goes to the horse... And he turns the horse towards the sun. Now the horse no longer sees his shadow, Alexander gives him and gallops around. As the horse was turned to face the sun and he could no longer see his scary shadow, that horse became a courageous, manageable, serviceable, useful horse. In the same way as we are turned, to face the sun, we will no longer see the scary shadows following us. You ever tried to look at the sun and your shadow at the same time? can't do it. You cannot look at a light and a shadow at the same time. So as we are redirected to face the sun, to regard the sun, to see the sun, we no longer see the scary things following us. We too become courageous, useful, serviceable creatures for God.